I, I find I it, love to, it. I find it to be very therapeutic. Grocery shopping is like a mm-hmm. bonding experience for my wife and I. Do, do you find? <laughs> I love just walking around. I love I love people watching for one, and then same thing. It's just fun. To, it's a slow environment. No one's ever like. I mean, then again, when you take our four kids and it's five o'clock, it's never a fun experience because everyone's hungry and, and whining. But yeah, no, it's, I think it's a fun date night too. Yeah, I did too. We used to we did a lot of grocery shopping when our kids were younger. That was like we drop off the we drop off our children with my in laws, and then we go see a movie, and then we end up in the grocery store. You know, like that was like the best date ever. I was like, people look at you like mm-hmm. that's what your life is like when you're married. I go, well, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? for sure. I know. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. everyone, this is Todd Fredericks Dio. Uh, I am a professor, I'm an associate professor, but hopefully someday a full professor of uh, primary care at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in Athens, Ohio. And this is our third and, and probably last segment for this time with uh, Brian Giles Dio, who is a um, fourth year uh, chief ophthalmology resident at um, Joint Base San Antonio at the hospital there. And we've been talking about, let's see, we've talked about his background. We've talked about uh, the diagnosis in ophthalmology. They're important, how a, how a student can get ready for ophthalmology. And so today we're going to talk about a little bit of contemporary things and and uh, where things are going right now for him. And so I think the, the, the first thing I'm going to ask is, what's the worst day in your practice? What when you when you go in and you think the worst day thing the worst day I ever have of being an ophthalmologist is when this goes on? What is that, Brent? Um, so we are blessed in the military to have an archaic EHR system. Would that and be it's, Alta? It's really kind of, um, it would be. It yeah. would be Alta, isn't it? It's legendary, isn't it? It would be. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> my there are some days where I go to work and I. I pound the wall because I'll go in by myself and just get so frustrated because we'll have this brand new practice, million dollar equipment, and I can't open up the thinking scan, you know, or I can't. And so there's been times where it's, you know, my first patient got there at eight o'clock and I, at 10 o'clock, I'm finally able to open up their visual field for the first time. And so my worst day in practice has nothing to do with ophthalmology. It has nothing to do with seeing patients um, because that's, that's when I'm my happiest. It's uh, it's all the just. <laughs> it was when you lose computer access and you can't find the printer and the internet's down. So that's my worst day in practice for sure. I had a colleague uh, <laughs> two weeks ago tell me he he is an obstetrics gynecologist, an OBGYN, and he's later in practice. And I said, so what's the you know we we're talking about retirement because we're all on the retirement side of life right now because of mm-hmm. our age. And I said, what's going to drive you into retirement? He goes, DHR. 
And I would mention yeah. the EHR, but I'm afraid of their lawyers coming after me. I'll just say this. It's a commonly <laughs> used EHR in civilian practice. And I, I said, so what's so bad about it? He goes, it, he, he said, most people count sheep when they're trying to sleep. I count how many mouse clicks it takes me in the EHR to do a simple well woman visit. He said it was 121 mouse clicks to complete, 121 to complete the average well patient visit encounter, you know, because he's seeing moms, right, who are pregnant or yeah. who are seeing, they're coming for OB services, 121 mouse clicks. And he told me about one of his colleagues who, who made the decision because of the EHR to retire this year. He said, I just can't take it anymore. And he was getting flack from yeah. people and your EHR is wrong and we can't bill and all this other stuff. And I mean, that's great. So you have a highly experienced physician who's going to quit practicing because of the stupid computer system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever at all. No. Like th this should be an emergency uh, referendum on all of this stuff, because I'll tell you flat out, Brian, I've lived in the age of paper charts. I've lived in the age of template charting and I've lived in the age of EHRs. And I can tell you flat out, I can find things much faster in a paper chart than I could ever find an EHR. I don't care. I've used five different EHRs now and all of them, none of them have ever competed with me for the efficiency of a paper chart. I've never, have yeah, never, we, have ever exceeded the efficiency of the paper chart. No, I agree. So in ophthalmology, we just, we just transferred into um, using kind of a workaround in our, in our program because previously we were using paper. My first two years using paper and it, it was amazing. Um, they just scan them in and I can write a note and with my acronyms that no one else knows, um, I can write a note in, you know, 20 seconds. Um, whereas now it's, uh, it takes 20 seconds just to, to find the patient, so. Isn't that crazy? The doctors told me, Bryant, that they spend, that one guy who literally, he does time studies on himself, fully 50% of his time is servicing the EHR. He, mm -hmm. he, he, oh. he said it used to be for charting, he estimated about 5 to 10% of his time was taken up with charting, either inpatient or outpatient. It's now 50% of his time is taken up charting. Yep. Is that insane? Absolutely. So I, uh, I worked, the, I'm at the VA right now for two months, which is, a really neat opportunity that we have um, in San Antonio over. and mm -hmm, exactly. Hmm. So we, we literally just come over and do cataracts. Uh, all I'm doing is doing cataract surgery, pre-ops, post-ops, and there's just such a need for it. And it's, it's a great training opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I walk in and, and I apologize to every single patient. I'm like, sir, I really, I always told myself as a doc, you know, as a medical student that I would not be this person, but I, unfortunately the way this room is set up, my back's going to be to you for about five minutes as I, as I fight through the chart and I'll be back mentally in just a second and they're always pretty cool with it but yeah it gets me it does now think, actually think about that discussion of, it took you 20 to 30 seconds just to have the disclaimer exactly right yep yeah i uh Good. i had to start because it's such a like i start creating like, cataract handouts to patients um i found that like i just sometimes i didn't have time to sit and go through every single thing that, that the patients deserve to have right um, answering all these questions, but like I just didn't have the, the chair time to do it and, and to, to meet everything. So I even created a website where I posted videos and put all the information on there and they can go in there and they can even like chat with me through my website. Um, and so my tech knows that when they, if they're here for a cataract evaluation, like give them my handout and then my handout's got a website at the top and I've got a QR code that goes to my YouTube channel so that people can actually like get the education I feel like they need from me still, but only because I, I just don't have the, sometimes I just don't have the time to do it and it's not, yeah, it all comes back down to the EHR. So you gotta you gotta find ways to, to fight it every day. We've got to find ways 
to actually take care of patients because we're servicing IT people and big data metrics folks who don't take yeah. care of any patients. No, for sure. It's bizarre. Yeah. Well, but kudos to you for taking the additional step to create your instructions so that patients could <laughs> see you actually give them the information they truly need to get better. That's, 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 that is truly impressive. But I've, I've, you've done that before with other things, right? And I'll talk about this, uh, your, 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 your iPro foundation in a little bit. What's the best day okay. of the practice of an ophthalmologist? Uh, well, so I'm a surgeon at heart, right? So any day I'm in the OR is the best day ever. So I think this last Thursday was, was an awesome day. Because of COVID, they kind of limited how many surgeries can do. So I had seven cataracts in the morning. Um, had everything written and done by like by noon. And we just, and that's the deuce. So we went home, and which means, I got to be home for my kids and, and help out with help out with homeschool a little bit towards the end of it, and then and then I think I think one of those days we get like my wife sometimes will will set on my surgery day sometimes she'll she'll set a because uh, we have to book times in our in the community pool so she'll book it for like forty five and if I can get sur- surgeries in get all my notes written and then make it make it to pool time with the kids that's the best day ever. So here's the secret I was talking to you on the last segment. The reason why I'm a family doctor today is because as a military medical officer, the most flexible specialty in the military is family medicine because you can be operationally deployed, you can go down range, you can do, I'm a master flight surgeon. All we do is operational medicine most of the time and we're forward with operational units and that's, that's what I wanted to do. But Brian, I'll be flat out honest with you. If I could do it again, I have a wanderlust, so I, it's hard for me to be in a fixed place for a very long time. And I have ADHD. Probably, prob- I don't technically have ADHD. If anybody in the army, especially at Rutgers, listening, I don't have ADHD. <laughs> anyway, but let's say I have ADHD-like tendencies, so I couldn't be- bear the idea of being in a single surgery center my entire life. But I, if I had to be a surgeon, I would be an ophthalmologist because I have I've thought about this for years. I don't know of a specialty that has a greater impact on the quality of life of people in as short a time as ophthalmology. Just the, just the uh, correcting of cataracts alone in terms of long-term morbidity from reduction of falls, uh, overall enjoyment of life, being able to see grandkids, that it is an amazing specialty to me that can do so much good in such little time. And so if I had to choose, I would have never been an ENT. That blew my mind when you said that. I was like, ENT, have you ever seen a hemifacectomy from like, you know, sinus cancer? It is horrible. It's dripping everywhere. I, those guys I have tr- incredible respect for because it is a messy, nasty business and the anatomy is off the charts complex. And you're like, I could never be an ENT surgeon, but to be an ophthalmologist where I know that seven people because I spent a morning and I became really good at what I do, seven people can now see their grandkids. That to me is awesome, right? I'm too old to do it, Absolutely. but I would do it in a minute. I would go back and become an ophthalmologist because I just think it's amazing to give someone their sight back. Or to it fix- absolutely is. Yeah. What a wonderful thing. It goes back to, see, you wanted to do the CNT thing, and somehow or another, uh, God had different plans for you and put you in a place where you can do such tremendous good for so many people and do it pretty quickly. Yep. By the way, oh, they don't make what they used to make. They used to make this inc- these obscene amounts of money, like like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per cataract. And now I think that's changed. But they, I think they still do pretty well. Oh, 
It's like, it's like 300 bucks to cut it right now. Yeah, it's not like the old days where every ophthalmologist was like a neurosurgeon making a million a year. I mean, it's that. that was, no. <laughs> hey, are you doing any LASIK? Um, yeah, so my fourth year, we get we have the uh, Warfighter Refractive Surgery Center, which is uh, here at, at Lackland, actually. So it's the, the Air Force side of things, and it's a big refractive surgery center. So all of, um, there's probably four or five of our doctors that do refractive surgery over there. So we'll get more. I'll graduate with more cases in refractive surgery than most um, fellows do who've got done like a fellowship in refractive surgery or um, like cornea. So it's but, amazing. Yes, we get we get awesome experience. Plus, you get to deal with all the cool guys like the seals and the green berets and the the oh, com- combat pilots, controllers yeah. and all that stuff. PJs. For sure. Yeah, my son had LASIK so he can go to flight school. So he's down at Fort Rucker right now, becoming a helicopter pilot, and he had to have LASIK. And oh, cool. I mean, yeah. I, I searched that out. I went out and said, "Is this really legit?" Like, like you know, flapping out the eyeball and dislocated flaps. And you know, we have a, we we're fortunate that one of the top uh, uh, corneal refractive surgery specialists in the in the world is up in Columbus, Ohio. And we took him to him, and he said, "No, he says I'd have no problem. He says I've had it done myself." And yeah. so it's amazing how LASIK has changed things too. That's cool. So you're going to get all that experience too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. And that's actually what I want to do. Like I want to do cataract and refractive surgery. Like that's, I mean, I, I enjoy like, obviously I enjoy seeing like general clinic stuff, but like I'm, I'm a happiest with, with cataract patients with refractive patients. Like you said, they're so thinking happy. I could talk about that for hours, but yeah. Do you like PRK? I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you think there's appropriate applications for PRK too? Absolutely. Yes. I think we probably do half and half. At our, at our center. So we'll, if people are good candidates for either one, we'll give them the option, give, give them a little spiel beforehand of this is the, you know, the, the benefits and, and complications or whatever of, of both of them. And, and people have the choice. And so a lot of people are scared of that flap and other people will say, I don't want to be in pain for a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they make different choices, but yeah, so most people have, we can give most people the choice. And, so, yeah. so when I was going through medical school, um, they were starting to figure out that radio keratotomy is a bad thing to do to people. Uh, but, 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 well, you know, I mean, that's what happens in medicine, right? There's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, they, they cookie cutter people's eyeballs up. And the next thing you know, they realize, well, that was a bad idea. So, <laughs> so, so no one does RK anymore, right? No. Uh, that's just, it's just bad idea. Not, not it's, it's a bad idea. Maybe if you go to some other part of the world to get the radio keratotomy. Somebody will do it. Yeah. But even that change, I like can just, you know, just a matter of years, the technology comes out. It's supposed to be the newest things and greatest thing since sliced bread. And then they realize a few years later, oh, that wasn't so great. And then yep. LASIK and PRK. Well, so you're talking about largely something that's outpatient. What about inpatient ophthalmology? Do you like inpatient ophthalmology? Um, I do. So, I don't want to do it the rest of my life necessarily. Um, but it's an amazing teaching opportunity, especially here being here at, at Brook army. Um, again, like I said, even that, that my very first rotation was that, that trauma rotation. So as, as a first year, we're like the trauma help. And then the second year with the, with the trauma chief, we're really running the inpatient service. I mean, we have anywhere between some of three and up to like 15 or 20 patients that we're rounding on at a time. Um, most of it's, or burn players, uh, the, the people up in the burn unit who are taking care of those are the ones who are needing daily contact. Um, or pa- patients with like chemical injuries or, or flash injuries, flash burn injuries. Um, yeah, there's nothing. There's not a lot of things we do acutely in inpatient, and so a lot of it's just medically managing them until they're stable, either to have surgery at a few, at a later date. Um, well, you mentioned Steven yeah. Johnson syndrome. That's that's probably an emergency consult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Yeah, what can happen to an eyeball with Steven Johnson syndrome? I'm thinking. 
So, yeah, it's a good question. So we had one last week as a rule out, as I kind of mentioned earlier. Um, but the, the biggest fear with Steven Johnson is the mucosal involvement. And so if, if they have mouth involvement or they have vaginal involvement or they have other mucosa, um, the eyes are, are right there with it. And so, uh, so we go in there and evaluate them to make sure that there's no mucosal involvement in the eyeball, either conjunctiva or their eyelids. And if they don't, then we just continue to watch them daily um, or every couple of days just to make sure it doesn't evolve. And most of the time, it kind of it goes along with like, if their mouth is getting worse or their skin is getting worse, typically mm-hmm. their eyes are going to get involved. Um, so that's kind of a telltale sign. But if they do have involvement, then the, the biggest fear is that anytime there's those, the mucosal surfaces that are inflamed and they're touching, they can adhere to each other, right? Which is why Gein, Gein gets, uh, gets involved and, and they do things. Because you can imagine what happens if, if all that mucosal tissue gets scarred down to each other. It's no longer functioning like it's supposed to. The same thing in the eye. So the eye, if the eyelid gets scarred down to the eye, the eyeball, then the patient loses the ability to look up and down or they lose, they get, they get restrictions in movement. Um, it's called a symbolephron. So their, their lower eyelid um, will actually just adhere to itself and on the inside, the conjunctival side. So we, we have some amazing technology with amniotic graphs. Um, we've actually done some neat, neat amniotic graphs. Wait a minute. So exactly. So it's a, go ahead. So you, you, you trundle over to the OB department and you say, we do, yeah. <laughs> I need some amnion. I need, I need some, an amniotic, amniotic membrane. Cause I'm going to go do some surgery. Is that, is that what we we're talking about? The trash. Yeah. No, you don't exactly dig right. through the trash, but then, no, is this, no, this have, like a uh, donor pool. Yeah. So it's actually, it's a really neat, um, application. I think, I think ophthalmology is one of the first people start using amniotic graft. Um, so yes, yeah, it's the inner two layers of, of the amniotic tissue and it's, it's devitalized tissue and they, they, I don't know how they, they strip it off and they, sometimes it's freeze dried and um, other times it's, just, it's like just frozen onto this tiny, I mean, it's, it's a 10 by, I think like the one we use like a five by 10 centimeter little graph, kind of like a post-it note size. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a thin sheet of paper. And, uh, and so we're able to, Basically, you put that over the eyelid and then tuck it up under under the eyeball, over the eyeball completely, and under the other lid, and uh, and so it completely protects the the surface from the outer eyelid, um, from the top outer eyelid to the bottom outer eyelid. Every surface is covered so that as the inflammation of of the SJS is kind of taking hold, that that the, that tissue provides anti-inflammatory, and if and uh, as it, as it gets inflamed, it just burns to that tissue. And so the next day, if, if they're so inflamed that you know, they're burning through the amniotic membrane, um, we'll just replace it. And uh, it's, it's been you doing some research on that. Like I have a, a research study that I've done with, with one of my friends that go through all burn stuff. But we, we did a lot of neat things with amniotic grafts, actually. But, um, but, but Brian, done. there's a whole backstory to that. Like, think about this. Who, who came up with the idea of, yeah, you know, I think it'd be a good idea to take something, part of the afterbirth and shove it in someone's eye. I mean, that's really yeah, exactly. what it, I mean, who comes up yep. with that? There was somebody that actually had to think through that and said, yeah, I think that's what I'll do. Of all the other things you could think of tissue wise to use, we're going to use afterbirth. Like, I really hope this wasn't one of those, like something what? accidentally happens and then they learn from it. Um, kind of stories. I don't know. I think it was, so I know that one of the big guys that, that does a lot with the, with the amniotic membranes, I'm not sure if he founded it, but I think one of the studies I was, because I was writing a paper the other day, and I think they first used it like in the 40s. Really? And then stopped. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's, I don't know who found the magical properties of the amniotic graft, but like it's amazing. We use it in cornea surgery all the time. 
we'll use it in pterygium surgery. Like we, we, act, we use it a lot. Like we used it for the first time on an eyelid procedure that actually should get published sometime soon on, um, using it to basically stop the, the eyelids from scarring down to each other for, is it, anyway. it, it kind of like a telfa pad for the eye, like a non-adherent dressing that you can basically, Absolutely. that's it's, basically what we're looking at. Yeah. It's, it's, it's soft. It's pliable. We can, I, I can glue it down to the skin or I can suture it to the skin. I can put it anywhere I want to and it dissolves over time and it doesn't like with the telfa, you gotta go and take it out or, you know, even like alloderm, allograft. Um, this is such a thin material that your body just incorporates it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great growing medium too. Like so one of the studies that, one of my friends and I, well, he was really doing it, but kind of helped out with it was doing grafts where we put a piece of amniotic tissue down and then um, for eyelid burns and we cut out the skin, like a super clavicular graft and cut out real thin pieces of the skin, chop it up and put it on there and make and, and on the amniotic graft and then put another amniotic graft, like a sandwich graft. And we've seen some really neat results from the skin growing between those two layers. Um, on the on the surface of the eyelid. So I, I'm telling you, like I said, I would be an ophthalmologist if I had if I had to be a surgeon. I would be an ophthalmologist. It, did you have to? Did you find it challenging? Because you guys have to know some math. You have to know some physics and math, right? Was that hard? That's funny because in seventh grade, I when we did a dissection lab, I almost passed out during the eyeball section. Yeah, and then my worst uh, my worst subject in college was physics. Um, we we actually don't do any math. Um, our computers do a lot of math for us. And if I had to, for like my board question, you know, you know, my boards once a year, there's one or two math equations that I have to run out, um, like optics wise, but really for the most part, we don't. I, and I, and I used to think that early on thinking like, man, I'm going to get, I'm going to just die when it comes to all this. But with all the technology now, like when I'm, for example, I'm choosing someone's lens or if I'm going to put in a, a toric lens that corrects for stigmatism, I go online and type in the calculus all the, the patient information into these online calculators and it, it, it pretty well into, can throw everything out. No, I've been listening to a, a podcast um, the last couple, last couple days about some of the early pioneers and, and who these calculators were named after or the, the people actually created these calculators. So there's a lot of math and, and stats that go into these, into the calculators we use. So I'm glad that there's some people that are really, really good at that stuff, but I don't, I fortunately don't have to deal with that very much. Yeah, see, that's one of the things that always intimidated me. Because, like, you guys, that's the other thing I have a problem with you guys. You guys give us get this, these weird diopter things. All I want you to do is tell me what a Snelling chart would say. And I wish I wish there was, like, this easy way I could just go, okay, this many diopters means this on the Snell. Because remember, I, I deal with pictures and crayons as a family doctor. I'm like, I'm not a super bright <laughs> guy when it comes to optical physics. So I'm like, I want to be able to know if that person's got a minus 7.5 diopter problem, what does that mean on the Snellen chart? That I can understand. So what's the resource for that? So if I'm a, if I'm a, either a, a, a totally naive medical student or a pretty experienced family doctor, I can just say that many diopters means this is what they should see on the Snellen chart. Where is that? Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, there, there is, so that's all with your focal point, right? So that's just, it's one over your focal point is, is the distance for that. So like one over your, the diameter, the, the diametric difference. And so there is some math according to that, but even then I honestly don't use that very much. I, I mean, I can estimate it. So I'm, I was a minus nine. So I have, I had, I, you are blind. Um, I, I, I did. So I have lenses put in my eye. Um, cause I wasn't a good candidate for LASIK or PRK, but being a minus nine meant that about eight inches in front of my face, I had the best vision of anybody I knew. Beyond that, I couldn't see anything. Um, so I can see. So I know what a minus nine looks like. 
and the snow and chart. I mean, that, that's off. You can't, I can't even see the snow and chart at that point. There's no E. Yeah, I know. Um, no. And so, and I shoot for cataract surgery, depending on what people's kind of goals are in life and kind of and what we decide. I'll shoot from anywhere between like having zero left over to I've done like minus two before. So uh, they can drive. They can drive without glasses. Um, so minus two, it's a little tougher to drive without glasses. Like you can, I mean, you can still see. Um, Twenty fifty. Really, what that does is that, that sets them up close, so they don't. For, if someone's a minus two, that means they're basically wearing a reading glasses in their left eye or whichever eye they put it in, and they don't need glasses in that eye. Yeah, it's rough close. Did the army do so. your uh, lens implants? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my program director did. Yeah, so the, I'm, I'm a minus eight, and so I've waited for years to develop enough of a cataract that they'll go ahead and put IOLs in because I, I would love to be able to wake up without glasses. It's something I haven't been able to do since I was seven. And so, um, yep. and of course, I'm a pilot, and I was, on a, I was on a flight once, and this is why I now know exactly where my spare glasses are in my flight bag and where I store my flight bag where I can reach it because I actually lost my glasses in flight. They got, I turned real quick, and the communications cord ripped them off my face. And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing like being blind flying instruments, and you can't see the panel. And I was like, yep. it's, it's, it's true. And I'm surprised we haven't. I talked to my ophthalmologist buddy, and I guess it used to be considered unethical to wipe out a perfectly healthy lens. And now I guess that's changing a little bit that they realize there's so much debilitated potential for being such a severe myope that it's probably okay to put an IOL in. I don't know what your thoughts on that. Is that true? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. So there's, so we call it a clear lens exchange, a CLE. We don't do it in the military very often. Like it, there's got to be a good reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in private practice, there's a lot of guys, um, that do that. And I mean, you'll have somebody, I mean, you, you don't cause you're, you're high minus, um, you just take off your glasses and you can read up close, but most people can't do that. So at the age of 40, when that presbyopia starts kicking in, mm-hmm. they need glasses to see up close. And there's, I mean, there's lots and lots of cataract surgeons who really tailor their practice around doing surgery for those people who are 40, 45 and just don't want to wear glasses anymore. Um, or don't even want to start that process. And I've even considered that too. Like when I, like when I'm to that age now, my, my prescription is like a minus one in both eyes, which I want that. And it's, it works out perfect. Cause it's going to be a, a huge blessing over the next couple of years as I get older um, mm-hmm. for surgery wise. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's very big practices that, that do that. They take out a 45, 50 year old cataract and put in these lenses. Cause again, the technology in these lenses, I mean, you're looking at a, those guys, like my surgery is in for like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, but those guys can do cataract surgery in, you know, six, seven minutes. And so when it's, when it's that quick of a surgery, um, the complication rate is super low, and if you can give some of these these amazing lenses that allow you to see that well, um, yeah, I mean, there's practices where they pay. It's all it's just kind of like it's kind of like LASIK, where it's all cash out of pocket, but pe- people are willing to pay for it because of their vision. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of surgeons who are doing that now. Will um, that last them a lifetime, Brian, or will they have to have that replaced, or can they replace them? Nope. I don't know if they can or not. No, no, for sure, no. So um, you can replace them. It's we, nobody likes going in someone's eye taking out a limb. It's very technically difficult and, and kind of not really dangerous, but very it can can have a lot of complications. So, but no, that that lens lasts way 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 longer than than the person will. So, so a person could have an IOL for all the time. 45, 50 years, they could have an IOL. Oh yeah, for sure, no problem. Yep, no, because your eyes your eye stops growing after you know thirty forty. Wow. So, well, That's... really, really in your twenties you stop growing, but um, yeah, no, those those lenses. I mean, they'll you'll be dust and dust and silicone lenses for for the eternities. Not really, but there's a there's a is there a worry about dislocating them? So like it, it, this is not suited for a younger person who's highly active, or is it? 
No, no, it's fine. Um, like again, like I have lenses inside my eyes. Um, if you're getting punched in the face, there's not really any, I think the best recommendation is to not get punched in the face, but, um, there's no, no, there's, they're, they're very safe after probably after the first couple of months, the, they scar down in really well. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Wow. So, seriously, if anybody wants to, I mean, there's tons of websites you can watch cataracts, but I have a, me and my other chief resident created a, a YouTube channel where we post kind of some funny music videos we made about ophthalmology, mm-hmm. but then I've been offering to my patients who, who are interested in it. Um, I have to review their surgeries anyway. So what I'll do is I'll go, we'll record all the surgeries and and during surgery. And then that night I'll go through and as I'm watching the videos, I splice them up and then throw them on YouTube and then they can share them with their friends and family. They can watch their cataract surgery later. Um, so if anybody wants to watch a YouTube channel or watch cataract surgery, you totally can. You can send me the links. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Okay, Brian. So for the sake of time, uh, what uh, we'll get to the COVID question. Well, I'll get it to now. What, how's COVID changed the way you guys are practicing? COVID slowed everything down. Um, we were initially very, very concerned. I mean, the, the first person who the whistleblower on, on COVID was an ophthalmologist who passed away. Um, and then there's, we had a lot of uncertainties early on about how much of it was excreted through the, the eye, um, through eye secretions. And, and so we were, we were very, very timid and, as we all should be, you know, initially, mm-hmm. um, and even still today. But, uh, so things really grinded to a halt where we, we stopped seeing patients overnight. We would just defer almost, unless it's a true ocular emergency, we, um, we defer everything to the next day. Um, which is, which is nice sometimes without, you know, that means a lot of our residents aren't seeing, seeing things at night or, or getting that experience. We shut our clinics down pretty, pretty hard. We're just now getting up to like, Think like thirty or forty percent capacity, wow. clinics wise. So, um, in a lot of ways, COVID has been like the greatest blessing to me because I get to spend all the time with my family, and I'm far, farther enough in my in my training that I don't feel like I'm missing out tons. Um, but it's been it's been really hard on our younger residents too. Just they're not getting the surgical volume that they, they should have had by now. They're not getting the patient experience, and so we've been having to to to, to work around that a lot. Um, but hopefully. I mean, things are opening up now. Like, so we've started doing surgery a couple months ago. Well, about two months ago, we started doing really non-elective surgeries, patients who are really blinded by cataracts or, or other problems like retina problems. And then now that we've opened up for, for elective surgeries, um, we're really kind of getting back on pace. What's your thoughts about fomite transmission through the eye of, of SARS-CoV-2? Yes, no, low likelihood? Um, probably low likelihood. Uh-huh. Um, but I think it's still... I mean, we're still wearing gloves with every patient, wearing eye protection, um, being as, as prudent as we can. Yeah. So that so eye protection. So you have a foundation. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the foundation. I do. Um, yeah. So I have a foundation called Preservisionaries, and uh, so two years ago I was on call, and we just had we had this poor guy that was like basically got a firework injury to the eye, and he was he was walking by. Um, it wasn't his fireworks; it was his neighbor's fireworks. He's having me walking by, and this this little fire effect, a little metal ball, um, didn't go off. And instead it went straight through this guy's eye as he was walking by. And so lost his vision. We, we spent like 14 hours in surgery trying to get this piece of metal out of the inside of his eye without destroying his eye. 14 hours. And ultimately three. Yeah. Like we tried, we tried everything and we, we were, we ran back into urology and we're grabbing like, like stone snares and we were, we tried to snare. And I think that's what ultimately worked is we snared it out. Um, so, 
and it ended up taking the guy's eye out like two two days, two or three days later just because of the damage that was done by it. And so oh that God. right after that surgery, um, me and one of my co reps were talking and we're like, It'd be so much easier if we would just we could just give away free eyeglasses to people, you know. And I was like, Well, this is stupid, like let's just do it. Like there's no reason and yeah, I think about all these like big leaders in our within ophthalmology who've done great things. Like they're all just normal people. They just had an idea and just did it. And uh and so my wife happened to be out of town for for about the next six weeks and I looked into it a lot and, and uh, learned how to create my own nonprofit organization and do all that paperwork. And it was, it was a great learning experience. But yeah, so, I, so my foundation is called Treasure Visionaries. Um, our first campaign is, is called Save the Site. And so, so we, we got like 5,000 eyeglasses and really just been donations, like my own donations and donations from my, my parents and stuff. Um, but uh, what we've been able to do is is we'll you know go to the local police the fire department and say hey this is who we are this is you know what we want to do and they're like oh you know what do you want from us I'm like I literally just want to give you guys eyeglasses to give away and uh, and so we give our glasses out through fire departments and they just they get super excited it's something for them to give away in a good public um, like a community benefit so um, we got some guys who will carry them around on trucks with them and every anytime they see somebody out weed eating or mowing without eye protection they'll stop and give them eye protection um, and. Uh, I don't know if any stories yet. I don't think I've saved anybody's eyes. The other day I happened wearing a piece and I was cutting, we were in a, in a lab and I took off a, a blade on a, on a scalpel and it broke in thirds and the middle third shot up at me and hit me in the, it would have gone straight through my eye, but I have to wear my eye protection. So maybe, maybe this whole thing was, was just to save my own eyesight. <laughs> well, but, you don't, uh, but, you don't know. Part, go ahead. You, you don't know. I mean, a lot of these things you'll never hear about, right? Because as mm-hmm. they get given out, you, I mean, people, it's it's like the problem with public health. No one ever thinks about the, 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 the lives saved. You can't qualify. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's only when the public health falls apart that people start dying that people say, holy cow, look at all these people have died. I've told medical students for years, if you want to save a few lives, become a physician. If you want to save thousands of lives, become a sanitarian, right? But no yeah. one ever talks about the sanitarians. And yet, if they weren't there, everybody'd have hepatitis A, and they'd be, you know, getting cholera and whatever else. So you don't know, Brian. You probably have uh, prevented some significant eye injuries that no one ever reported because it was like, oh yeah, good thing I was wearing those glasses. And they went back and started <laughs> with their barbecue and made their tri-tip. I mean, that's that's kind of what they do, right? I mean, they, yep, no, for sure. So I don't think so I one do, of the yeah, go ahead. One thing, one of the other things that was interesting of learning about the, the nonprofit thing was, um, and you mentioned earlier, just just the, the public benefit for. Like what we can do for people's lives. And one of the things that, that I'm really, really excited to do in the future, and, I, and COVID kind of messed up some plans. I was supposed to go to the Dominican Republic, and I was supposed to go to Tanzania this year to do mission trips. But the, the amount of mission trips, and we're able to go into a small, you know, to a small city, and within a couple of days, just change the lives of mm. hundreds of people. And, and those guys aren't, they're not 20, 30 cataracts, you know, that they can't see their golf ball anymore. These guys are blind. They're walking around with big ulcers on their legs and, and infections because they're they're literally blind and running into things and getting infections and they can't see. And so at that point they become a burden on the family and the only thing they can really do is beg. Um, and so you can go we can go to these small these small villages and just change change everything, um, just by giving five vaccinations. And so part of my nonprofit was, was was really an avenue for me to be able to donate money in the future and, and have that like a, a tax deductible thing. So um, it's it's been it's been interesting like making plans for the future and realizing what things I can do as a resident now early on to kind of start setting up the, 
um, the groundwork for me to be able to do mission trips. Um, and, and you know, I mean, you don't have to go open up a nonprofit to go do mission trips, but no. I think if it's something that you're, you're passionate about and you want to find ways to, to fund it, I think you absolutely should. But you know, the thing is, is that if you can save money on, on by a tax deductible donation, to fund a mission trip, that means there's more funds available to go into things like buying eyeglasses. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. there's ways that sure. works, right? So if I can save the money on one place to put it into another, like my dream job would be being like the you know the first officer on an Orbis DC-10. I think that'd be awesome. Like to fly the eye hospital to someplace yep. and watch the ophthalmologist do you know a couple hundred you know uh, cataracts while the ENT guys do a couple hundred cleft palate repairs and then you leave and you realize those people's lives will be different because of what happened. I would love that yep. job. That would be awesome. You know, that, that this is the coolest thing. Yep. And that's the nature of your specialty. It's seven minutes to change a life in the hands mm-hmm. of a skilled uh, cataract operator. You know what I mean? Totally cool. Yep. Uh, how about trachoma? That's no one sees trachoma in this country, right? So, I mean, but it we is, a, it is a problem mm-hmm. in other countries, right? Yep, it sure is. Yep, a lot of developing countries for yeah. sure. And so we have a lot of a lot of the our, our organizations, um, a lot of the nonprofit organizations will go down there and do. They'll take a plastic doctor and go down there and do trachomas, and then and then the cataracts will go down there, and then we'll take ped doctors go down there and fix for business. It's amazing how many little kids walk around completely cross-eyed, and you know, again, that's I mean that's that's a surgery all in itself too that just changes lives forever. So you want to do that, or you just want to do cataracts? Um, so I think I think if somebody is, if I had to overseas, I could I could do it. I, I'd be completely com- like comfortable doing it downrange. Um, or I mean, there's there's really neat stories of, of some of our is doing it for like a national, you know, the mayor's daughter or somebody down there to win the hearts and minds. Um, and uh, I think there's a great application for that. And so especially with the trauma, a lot of the, the the eye trauma we do, we actually have to almost do the same thing we do in an eye muscle surgery mm-hmm. as far as removing the muscle from the eye and putting it back on. So I, I feel confident doing it, but I think if, if you're doing it in children and you're doing it, it's not something you just do, you know, once a month. I think those guys really do deserve someone who's doing it every single day. It's kind of like same thing. I, I feel the same with cataract surgery. You don't want the cataract surgeon that's done, you know, that does three cataracts a month. Um, so. So years ago, and, and then we'll ask the last question for you, because I know we're, we're a little over time, but um, in 2005, I came up with this program called Vision for Kosovo. And uh-huh. I had talked to the Air Force uh, warfighter guys, the I guys up in, up in Germany. I said, hey, if we could find a way to get you in an operating microscope down here to the hospital at Camp Bonsteel, and I could supply you with the lenses, would you be willing to work with the, with the local eye doctors, sort of a teaching you know, teaching back and forth and do like a week of cataract surgery once a month. And in, you know, all you have to do is pay your per diem, which like in Kosovo is like a dollar 20 a day. And, and we'll, we'll make sure you have the DFAC and we'll fly the operating microscope down and da, 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 da. And they were all over it. Like all these majors and stuff. So you mean like I can do just a week of cataract surgery? I said, that's the plan. Like, going to sell us cataracts for their cost like which is you know you between you and me you know that's like 30 cents a lens right oh yeah so, so I, I mean they've got this down and i talked to i says yeah for something like that we'll, we'll all we want you to do is tell us apply this stuff so it's like i think it was something like that it's like 30 cents for an iol and i said i'll pay for the iols I'll write you a check because it was going to be 1,500 that we've estimated like 1,500 cataracts in, in Kosovo and between the Kosovar eye doctors and our guys, 
I thought, what a great thing. And you know who gave me the biggest blowback on that? The military? Yeah. The European command flipped out and said, why are you even talking about taking our ophthalmologist down to Kosovo? Who gave you the authority to even try this? I was so furious. I said, we spend all this time and effort, and yet I'm smart enough to know that a cataract surgery, you want to build goodwill in the Balkans? Have every person with cataracts in Kosovo cured and do it in conjunction with their eye doctors. And I was, I was, I was actually told to report to the hospital commander. He's, he yelled at me for a good 15 minutes for having a good idea and then kicked me out of his office. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, and and the, I I asked the eye doctors, the ophthalmologist up the air force guys, I said, are you guys doing much up there? He goes, no, we don't do much at all up here. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's all taken care of before anybody deploys. So I was like, they were looking forward to it. Like, yeah, we could do like seven or eight a day and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, great, it's a win for everybody. Nope. So maybe they've changed that. I hope, I hope that that's going to be the case because 30 cents to change a life and do that a bunch, that's a lot of goodwill from the United States of America. Yeah, for you, sure. You know what I mean? So I was actually, yeah, I was really considering, I mean, even like wrote up a little blurb and tried to, um, to get the Army to offer a global fellowship because that's kind of a new, one of the new fellowships that are starting to evolve are these global fellowships where you spend a year, six months doing um, either teaching or doing surgery and then mm-hmm. the other part doing um, basically like a, it's like a mini MPH. You're down there just either learning how to, how to do everything you just talked about, like to, to, how to develop the care and to deliver it. Mm-hmm. And then the other half the time, like either teaching or actually doing surgery. And, uh, and so I'd ask the army to, to offer a spot and I don't think they're going to, the Air Force just did, but uh, no, my my goal would be to spend probably one foot in the in the states and one foot out with my family and just be doing um, doing humanitarian work as much as we can. And uh, but I've I've kind of come to the realization that I've got to do that outside the military, which hurts because I feel like we can do the most good within the military. Um, but you, again, because there's so many constraints and there's so many like we've got amazing guys here that amazing colonel you know here that 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 does that, but they'll spend all this time on one trip a year. And that's kind of it. You know, whereas if you're part of a civilian organization, we can do four trips a year without the, you know, you don't have the U S government backing you, but also you don't have the U S government holding your hand. So, and, and so, tying you back. So. so Brian, I got a offline. We'll talk about this, but I actually uh, support and have done a little bit of work in the past with a mission hospital in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I have to talk to you about that because if we can figure out how to get an operating microscope down there and uh, get the lenses, there may be a way to uh, to do something like that. And it's an hour and a half from Fort Lauderdale. Like it's, and it is, it is poverty off the charts. Like you can't imagine, like you would go there and you would like, holy cow, I could help some people. We we, we should talk about yeah. that sometime. Yeah, yeah we should. Because the scopes now there. Fit in the backpack. You know, it's amazing. Well, yeah. So maybe so, you and I will talk about that because I want to get another, I want to go down and do ultrasound and continue to teach ultrasound, point of care ultrasound. But, oh, yeah. But I'm talking about, you know, if it's once or twice a year to go down there and work, they, it's not even that they have ophthalmologists that need training. They don't have ophthalmologists. Like, they don't have anything. Mm-hmm. And it's the nicest people, just lovely folks who are just in desperate poverty and just need a little bit of a hand. That might be something you and I could work on as a project. It'd be a lot of fun. And it would help a lot of yeah, people. I love that. Well, so that's a, high, a positive note. So last question, what have you learned in practice that you wish you'd have known prior to entering your specialty? What do you wish you'd have known? It sounds like you wouldn't uh, change. You still want to be an ENT, right? No, no, <laughs> no. And I work next to those guys and I work hand in hand with them and like some of like my good buddies. 
Um, but every day I'm like, man, I'm so glad I'm not you guys right now. I love my life too much. Right now. Um, had I known before, there's not, I guess there's nothing I wish I would have known before necessarily. I, I never realized how much, especially like when you do ENT or OB, I never realized how much of, of ophthalmology was the elderly population. Mm. Um, and not that I needed to know that beforehand, but that's been probably one of the greatest things to learn. Kind of, I mean, you learn pretty early on that all your patients come through the door, you know, are not 25 year old pregnant women um, or people with septic, you know, deviated septums. But uh, it, I think, I think it's such, it's such a blessing. Like these, I'm in there, you know, doing cataract surgery on these colonels or generals who've got amazing stories and done awesome things right now. Like I said, I'm in the VA, you know, all these guys who have, you know, put their lives on the line years ago and we get to take care of them now. And so I think it's, I think it's, it's been a fun realization to realize that my patient population is nowhere what I expected it to be mm. in medical school. Um, but it's, but I love it. Like these our patients are, they're so fun. Mm. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could talk about that again for days. But I think I love, I love that we get to take care of the the elderly population and and give them back something, you know, that, uh, they, that sometimes they didn't even know they were missing. So. A lot of accumulated wisdom in those chairs, aren't there? Absolutely. Yeah. What have we missed, Giles or Brant? What have we missed? Um, I think we missed, and I don't know if we don't talk about it too much. I know it's a different podcast, but I think it's always important to, to talk about. Just how you and I came to know each other. Oh, why? Is that going to is that going to bring because, accolades to me? No, 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 no. Oh, good. Because no. I don't want to. I, I don't need any more any more of an ego. No, it it, it doesn't. But I think it's, it it kind of comes down to we talked about earlier about being chief resident, being able to turn and help the next person. So coming through medicine, I knew nothing. Like going through, I mean, I made some mistakes in early on in, in college that I learned, and I and then even kind of learning the ropes of medical school and now residency. There's so much that unless you have a good mentor to help you out, you're just lost and you feel like you're, you're alone in the whole situation. And so, um, the, the way that you and I got to know each other was through AMOP. Um, and for those who don't know, it's the association of military osteopathic physicians and surgeons, it's basically all the, the DOs in the military. It's our, it's our organization to come together and mentor and learn from each other. Mm. And I feel like, um, I feel like the reason you and I know each other is because you have this heart to, to turn around and, and help teach, the next generation and help, help people who, who don't know, um, learn. I mean, that's why you're associate professor. That's why you continue you know, to do these podcasts and help people learn and to, to grow. And I think and whether it's AMOPS or some other organization, I think it's really important as, as medical physicians and as, as medical officers that, uh, that we realize our role as, um, as leaders. Um, there's a reason why doctors are, you know, on the top one or two or three, most trusted professionals and people look at us and, and expect us to be leaders. And we, sometimes we lose sight of that when our, our whole focus is just on medicine or it's just on the next test that's coming up. But we really do. We have a, a huge role to play and uh, as being leaders within our, within our profession and to the, to the people after us. That, that physician I talked about earlier, who's been a good mentor to me that's in the reserves. He was talking, um, he's talking about how at one point they were talking about how they, within their organization, uh, they were like, you know, how do we find, we need some really smart people to come in and help make decisions and be leaders um, within like the, the company level. Um, and he was like, guys, what about the medical corps? You've got all these extremely brilliant people with great leadership skills. Like why are we not tapping into them? And that, when he said that, I mean, I don't think it made any difference. I don't know if it 
change much at all. But it was that was kind of a big eye-opener to me that, like, we really are. Like, we just see ourselves, and oftentimes we look down on ourselves because we're surrounded by other people who are so smart or who are, have done such great things that we don't stop and realize that, like, we have we have a very big responsibility to, as physicians and, and as military officers, to to lead and, and to help teach and give back to other people. So, um, again, uh, the reason we know each other is because we found an organization that, that aligns um, aligns those needs for us and helps fill, fill a need. So I'd, I'd recommend that if you're not starting your own nonprofit, you're not starting your website, you're not getting involved with uh, with other programs or whatever it is, just find somebody that you can help mentor and, and help um, and give back. Because I think as obviously, yes, living here in America, but the, on top of that, the, the blessing of being a doctor or being, being in the military is, is something that should not be taken for granted for. So. Yeah, I should mention that uh, AMOPS is open for uh, allopathic students, those who be MDs as well, because it is true that oh, absolutely. we think of the senior leadership of AMOPS thinks of AMOPS as an officer organization first and a, and a medical organization second. And it is because, and we've talked about this before, we don't have student members of AMOPS. They're mem- they are AMOPS members. They happen to have SAMOPS, which is an organization that allows them to group, group together as students and peers, but they are members of the organization because we look at them as junior officers that need to be ca- helped along so that they can become the next senior officers to help the next group, right? And that's one of the yep. great things about the military is that if you're doing it right, those of us who are field grade officers are thinking, someone's got to replace us. How do we give them all the wisdom we can to help them along with that? And I'll tell you something. Brian, one of the things I've seen is I think some of the time the medical corps, uh, I think for some people, first of all, there's two problems. One is that medical corps officers who don't take seriously military art and science. So they don't get their education. They don't fight for it. Um, and that feeds into the second problem, which is the war fighters who are not medical people saying, ah, oh, the docs aren't qualified because they don't speak the military language. They're not familiar with the operational art. And that's helpful for them because I think sometimes we can intimidate them because they know we're smart people and they know we have to go to medical school. And that takes a lot of um, that takes a lot of diplomacy on our part to say, look, I'm just an officer like you are. I have a specialty, but I also speak the operational art and my job is to support you. But I need the education to be able to speak your language well so I can support you well. And what the most rewarding thing to me is, is when you have a non-medical senior leader say, you operationalize really well. What they're saying is you think like a soldier and you know Mm -hmm. how to apply this stuff in the real world. Like it's not just, Hey, can I have more time to go play golf? And you're, you're, you're harsh in my mellow because I'm a medical corps officer. I'm not supposed to really have to do all that military stuff. When you actually respect them enough to speak their language, they will start calling on you more and more to participate because they know you'll have good ideas. But it, it takes a long time to build that trust. It does. And you, it takes a lot of humility. You have to be willing to say, look, yeah, I have doctor in my name, but that doesn't mean anything. I, I'm just another dude just trying to get through life or do debt. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's nice, Brian. I'm, I'm glad you, you you pumped up my day. So now I get to go fight the crowds at the grocery with my wife, and and uh, that's a good way to start that. And uh, man, I really appreciate the conversation. I think we talked about a lot of good things here. Yeah, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm really amazed at endothelial transplants because it cured my sister's <laughs> blindness. That's just mind boggling <laughs> to me. I don't know how it even works, but hey, listen. Sometime if if I if I, I want to catch up with you in a year or so or two years when you've been in practice and see if there's a difference. And it'll probably be about thirty minutes. We'll just talk about what's it really like to be an ophthalmologist. Absolutely. And would that be okay? Yep. And I know you talked about earlier about students reaching out to you 
the same thing here. Like I get my number and my email to people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, any, if any of these guys, any of your students or anybody listening to this has questions about ophthalmology or military medicine, throw my contact information up there as well. Like I'm happy to, to talk through and, and answer any questions for people. I will do that. Okay, Brian, for the sake of time, uh, for folks listening, we have this, this concludes this first series with uh, Brian Giles Dio, who is a uh, chief resident of ophthalmology down at, at uh, Joint Base San Antonio in Texas. And uh, this is especially Spotlight talking about ophthalmology. And again, I'll put everything in the show notes. And if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer them and I'll write them all down and we'll have another phone call. But I ask you to, to share the word about rotations. If you are uh, just interested in medicine in general or you're a medical student trying to sort things out, send it to your friends. Let them listen. If you have ideas for how we can better meet the needs that you have for finding out information, I will sort through my vast lexicon of or my vast compendium of contacts and find someone that can talk about it um, with, uh, with expertise and hopefully answer your questions. And so with that, I ask you to do the best you can to have the best week you can. And uh, thank you for joining us today on Rotations. Rotations is the periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, the state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense, or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people who pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema or by contacting me, Todd Fredericks, T.R. Fredericks, at MeWe. If you comment, please be nice. I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.